G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Who's responsible for the huge road toll, for losing careers, for smashing families and for inflicting deadly illnesses? Well, expert insights today into one of the mega challenges that we're facing in the nation of Australia that does not always attract the level of straight talk from mainstream commentary. Shane Varco is back with us. He's Executive Director of the Dalgano Institute, a coalition of alcohol and drug educators. Now, as an alcohol and other drugs harm prevention advocate, Shane is the architect of what's called the No-Brainer Alcohol and Other Drug Education Project as well as some others that we might get a chance to talk about too, called The Fence Builder and Isabella's List, all about community action. Well, you can have your say today as we get the conversation underway. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316, but a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Shane Varco. Good morning, Neil. Yeah, it's good to be back with you and uh, with your listeners. Oh, Shane, I, I, uh, with a topic like we're talking about today... It almost sounds like an overreaction because when we think about the sorts of things that happen perhaps uh, with alcohol issues, the idea of a quiet drink on a Friday night at the end of a big week, uh, for some people that is the only alcohol they might be consuming. Uh, But we're talking alcohol and drug issues and asking who's responsible. So when we talk about this link between road toll, loss of careers, loss of family, causing illnesses, uh, health issues for our kids. Uh, It's a big, big issue that we're talking about. What is the link uh, that we can draw here between these alcohol drug issues and all of these other major concerns? Well, Neil, that's, of course, a a mammoth question with uh, long-reaching, far-reaching ramifications, of course. And once you start opening up this Pandora's box of, you know, what are the origins, uh, we certainly look at outcomes, sorry. We look at, you know, the things you've just mentioned, quite disturbing outcomes that that impact not just individuals but uh, families, precious families, children, partners, and, of course, businesses and, and, and productivity in the nation. But when you ask the question about, you know, what's facilitating this, then you look at you have to look at a lot of different different factors and what's linking them all. So, you know, it, it, the, the the short answer to this is actually a, a very simple one, but it's one that's skirted around consistently and perpetually by a, a culture that is struggling to understand, you know, what it's, what it's kind of... Uh, permitted to emerge, what, what it's allowed to, to create. Because every behaviour that we have in the marketplace, regardless of what it is, it's learned. And, and therefore, if it's learned, it's taught. Now, there's different vehicles for learning and teaching, of course, and there's passive models and there's aggressive and, and, and deployable models that are quite clear. But when it comes to alcohol and other drug use, the, the passive learning models are quite, uh, well, not so much passive, but the ones that we tend to not see as uh, teaching us or instructing us quite aggressive in the culture and uh, certainly we've seen that with tobacco over the years early years and that's why i like to go back to that particular substance under the national drug strategy we have um, obviously 
three specific uh, drug categories, tobacco, uh, alcohol and illicit substances, drugs. And uh, the and the tobacco one, obviously, that was back in after World War II, 75% of Australian people, uh, males were smoking, and about 62, 63% of Australian women were smoking. Again, legal, socially acceptable drug, quite normal. In fact, doctors were prescribing it for stress in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it was quite staggering that this substance was so well marketed and branded. And this behaviour sort of entrenched itself in the culture, saying, now, this, this is okay, it's normal, it's part of life, it's been absolutely normalised. So that instruction model is clearly in play. And then, of course, when they start prescribing it for stress, and yes, it does relieve stress, but then, of course, we found out the other ramifications around nicotine and the catastrophic health in, uh, issues around that and the productivity issues that uh, followed, or the failing in producti- productivity issues that failed because of the health issues was staggering. So all of a sudden, this massive $30 billion plus dollar debt started to hit the, the health system. And and the government said, we need to push back. So again, we introduced a deliberate and measured and focused education campaign to educate people away from tobacco. And that, for the most part, has worked remarkably well. And Australia is the world leaders in reducing tobacco, daily tobacco use globally. So the, the, the issue is, is, whose fault is it? Well, every person who lights up a cigarette, every person who takes a drink, every person who injects a substance or smokes a substance in their body is making a decision to take that uh, to take that drug in. Unless there's actually a gun to their head saying, you must do this, that's an act of free will. It's an act of choice. But unfortunately, more and more, because of the, the way our culture is drifting, we've got more and more the idea that um, you know, I'm not responsible for my action. I didn't choose this. Well, you did. Now, we're not talking about addiction and the tyranny of addiction and what that does to drive uh, choices after addiction has landed. But no one started drug use or alcohol or other drug use addicted they started with the first choice with the first use and for whatever reason they did that um so again going back to those those drivers what is actually facilitating this this uh, driver to uh, sorry demand driver to engage with substances particularly illicit substances and obviously illegal ones that's quite normalized and it's quite regular and quite consistent in the culture that's just okay to do this although as we've said smoking has kind of become a bit of a pariah if you're a smoker, you become a bit of a social pariah now. Yeah. And so that education mechanism has worked really well. So in the end, so what we are making the choices, and the user is the final and, and finally responsible for the outcome. But what elements and what factors are driving this demand by the user? And that's the question we need to look at. And we can do that today. But let me ask you, uh, when you describe the smoking issue mm-hmm. as having catastrophic consequences... Uh, can we legitimately draw a same correlation to issues of alcohol and drug use as having catastrophic consequences as well? Uh, is there uh, is there a similarity? Oh, undoubtedly, Neil. I think one of the issues with with cigarettes, and it's still one of the, the see, I think the data, recent data, is still the, the single biggest uh, in, in the US, and certainly would not not so much in Australia now, but in the US, it's still the biggest. A killer of people um, from the drugs perspective in America is the tobacco one and the health and the health damaging. Sorry, cost wise, it's the biggest uh, health uh, um, expense on the on the radar. Although alcohol is catching up, and illicit drug, drugs are certainly moving towards that space. But yeah, with cigarettes, I mean, obviously the the, the documentation around the health issues and the long term ramifications of on health of tobacco use is, you know, and you just click any button and you'll see that. It's so well documented now. Everyone's on board. The entire society, Neil, it's fascinating, isn't it? We've got one message in, in, in Australia specifically, one message, one focus, one voice on tobacco. 
in all the media, in government, in education systems, in policy, in, in regulations, there is one consistent voice, one consistent message and one consistent focus, and that is quit. It is the quit message. And so everyone's on board. There's no dissenting voices. There's no, not, and there's no uh, uh, um, sort of nuanced uh, options for other options that may be possible for, for people to do things. Yes, yeah, certainly it's legal. People can use it. But there's been so much uh, focus around this. We've seen this incredible drive with education and regulation, legislation working together to drive that down. Now, that's with tobacco. Great news. We love it. Fantastic. The reason I say all that is to say this. When it comes to alcohol and other illicit drugs, the question we have always asked is, and totally agree with what's happened with tobacco and should continue to happen. So there's not, not an argument about that policy framework and that driver. But when it comes to alcohol, the question we ask is, when was the last time a cigarette caused a man, particularly, to beat his wife to death? Mm. When was the last time a cigarette caused a car accident that put a person in a wheelchair for the rest of their life? And the answer to that question is virtually never. But when it comes to alcohol and other drugs, it's commonplace. So we've got another level of, of catastrophic uh, incursion into the into the culture which is is absolutely devastating because these are these are long-term issues and certainly death is permanent but certainly these uh, these debilitating uh, elements of um, misuse of, of alcohol and other drugs create these untold damage in the, on the on the roads as you've mentioned in the workplace and families and uh, we're not even talking uh, in those particular instances we're not even talking about some of the bigger other other issues but we're talking about the big ones of violence uh, and we know that alcohol does not necessarily cause violence but the type and intensity and severity and frequency of violence is added to by substance use. So that's not in doubt anymore. We know that. People, and a lot of people did argue that, you know, we can't say, oh, alcohol made me do it. Uh, well, that's, that's not an argument, and no, one, no one's putting that in the marketplace. But certainly the severity and type and frequency of violence are added to by substance use. And so removing those from the marketplace reduces severity, type, and frequency of those incidents, appalling, appalling incidences of family violence that do untold damage, particularly to the most vulnerable, and children, and, and often women as well, or more often women as well. So it's, you know, that's the thing we're, we're saying. These things are in play, yet the, the focus around drug policy for alcohol and illicit drugs isn't quit. And, of course, that was, uh, people say, oh, that's absolutely ridiculous. Well, they said that about t tobacco 30 years ago. That's ridiculous. You'll never move this. In fact, the tobacco lobby said 35 years ago, you'll never shift on these 19 points. And all of them have been defeated. And now in Australia, we have we celebrate, like I said, one of the, the lowest, in fact, the lowest daily smoking tobacco use rate in the world. So that's remarkable in that sense. When it comes to alcohol, we know it's got some amenity issues to it and, and there's lots of cultural factors. So certainly the occasional drink is never a problem. But the potential for misuse of that substance, as well as illegal drugs is creating untold harms to the community, and that needs to be seriously addressed. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Shane Varco, the executive director of Dalgano Institute, a coalition of alcohol and drug educators, is our special guest today on 2020. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Shane, uh, before we take this another step deeper and focus on some issues to do with alcohol, let's take a call. Sure. Ben is on the line from the Northern Territory. Hello, Ben. Welcome along. Hey, Ben. Benny. Hello, this is Ben. Yes, Ben. Hey, what ben. are your thoughts? Um, look, I'm a police officer with the uh, road safety area and uh, alcohol is one of the biggest issues we've got. Um, 
quite regularly. Um, we get very high range drink drivers, and uh, just the just the impact it has on people, not only the people that are driving, but you know the families and the other people on the road. It's uh, it's a very scary situation when you're pulling someone out of the car and they've got a blood alcohol content of 0.2. Um, I think the highest I've wow. got is 0.3. Yeah, wow. So, and Ben, just to draw attention to the fact that you're in the Northern Territory and uh, it's hot, it's dry, it's a thirsty state, a thirsty territory to be in. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a sense, isn't there? And I imagine that uh, when you get into uh, outback areas, places where it is hot and dry, that alcohol is even more entrenched in the culture than maybe it is on the coast. Definitely. I think, um, well, there's not a lot uh, for people to do up here, so they tend to look for any source of entertainment, being it uh, drugs, gambling, smoking, but alcohol is one of the easiest ones for them to access. Mm-hmm. And uh, when there's not a lot to do, they uh, yep. they tend to um, imbibe on it quite frequently. Ben, uh, thank you so much for reflecting Thanks, on that. Ben. Let's get uh, some insights from Shane Varco on uh, on what Ben is sharing. Look, it's fascinating that in response, and thanks, Ben, for, for for doing that. And look, again, alcohol continues to be the single biggest uh, drug issue in the culture because it's legal and socially acceptable and absolutely uh, marketed quite aggressively. And th- th- there is moves afoot, have been, and I'm involved with a number of different groups, local government agencies, lobby groups in communities, state, even state government authorities are now starting to go uh, push back against the alcohol industry simply because they're seeing the, the damage. Certainly productivity's down, health issues are up, and certainly, again, referring to family violence, it's, it's a real concern, and, and Rotol is continuing to be an issue. So, again, there's, there's a real pushback, as it was with tobacco. It's taken us another, you know, 20 years to get to this pace, but people are now going, now, hang on a minute, now, this, this is not right. We need to deal with this. And as Ben intimated, when you... When you've got people on the road with blood alcohol contents of 0.2 and 0.3, that's cricket scores, mate. They're, they're not blood alcohol contents. That's cricket scores. Now, the Dalgano Institute was our organisation, was one of the, in fact, the lead agency going back uh, many, many, many decades ago and driving the random breath testing as well as the blood alcohol content uh, legislation which came in. And when that was first introduced, and just a bit of history lesson, you know, some, you know, decades ago, which I can't remember the exact decades, even the police, when they were told you're going to have to do this, they were kind of like, oh, this is a waste of time. We don't want to bother with this. Uh, but as they saw the escalation of, of drink driving and the use of blood alcohol contents and the BAC law and the random breath testing, all of a sudden this started to save lives. And uh, so that was a remarkable thing, but I do digress. Now, back to the issue on on specifically uh, what's happening in in this context around thirst. I think Ben's hit the nail on the head. Boredom is the key driver for this. And what anthropologists tell us, and we do a lot of education in this space, and we talk with young people and families as well, it's fascinating to watch this, anthropologically speaking, and that's a big word I know, but it talks about the human, um, anthropology talks about humanity and not just a, its sociological dynamics, in other words, a cross-section of what may be happening behaviourally in the culture, but anthropology looks at the entire the entirety of, of, a, of a, uh, a human collective you know, or, or a culture. So it looks at belief systems, it looks at values, it looks at behaviours, it looks at traditions, it looks at rituals, it looks at family structures. So from that perspective, anthropologists tell us, it's fascinating, Neil, they tell us boredom has very little to do with the lack of entertainment. Um, and, and we've said to young people, you know, we, put the, we ask this of young people in schools and, and families, in fact, put your hand up if you've said or thought, I'm bored in the last 24 hours, and you know, invariably you get most of the hands go up, not all of them, but most of them. 
And I say, you realise that boredom's got nothing to do with the lack of entertainment. You're the most entertained generation that's ever lived on the planet. You've got ex- access to so much variance, uh, variation, so much potential for engagement with so many different vehicles and platforms, yet you're simultaneously the most bored. So where is that coming from? And the answer from the anthropological space is that it's everything to do with a lack of meaning. It's a lack of sustainable context for why you're doing what you're doing and why life is important. And so that's fascinating when you put that into the, to the mix. People start to realize, well, okay, it's not that I'm not entertained. I, you know, I, I, I go and gamble, I have a buzz, the dopamine level's released, I drink some alcohol, dopamine level's released. But of course, every time it happens, the neurotransmitters are kicked into play, then the next time it has to be a little bit more and a little bit more. And, and those things start to start wear thin. So we get this kind of growing disappointment with the pleasure, if you like, the pleasure buttons that have been pushed. And, of course, we just escalate in our use of that, which we believe is bringing us pleasure, which, in fact, is just, it's not actually dealing with the real issues of, you know, well, what, what are the really important issues that I could be engaged with? Productivity, purpose, you know, engagement in family, engagement in the community, engagement in work, engagement in with, uh, you know, make a cause, perhaps, that's going to make a, a difference to, to my community. They're the things that are actually going to shift the culture, um, along with, obviously, the reduction and or uh, management of these substances. So, again, I'm fascinated by that, again, that same statement coming out of boredom being a big driver. And, yes, it is a, a big demand driver, for sure. Uh, ben, from the Northern Territory, uh, I wish we could pick your brain on a whole lot of different issues, including uh, <laughs> random breath testing and uh, drug testing, which no doubt goes on, and whether that has much of an effect. Uh, but uh, mm. given Shane Varco's response there, uh, we're appreciating mm. there's deeper issues there. But Ben from the Northern Territory, thank you so much for being part of 2020 today. Our talkback line is open. It's one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you'd like to join in our conversation, let's take a call. Robin is in Mount Morgan. Hello, Robin. Welcome along. Yes, hello. Um, look, I see all of these things as a, a spiritual, um, as a spiritual thing. Absolutely. Um, Look, where do people go if they don't have the power and the love of Christ to overcome? Where do they go for comfort, you know? And um, we all have this God-shaped vacuum um, in us. Now, if we don't fill it with God, we're going to fill it with something else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, as a psych nurse, I've seen every all range of um, demonic captivity. And that's what it is. That's what it comes to. They start with something. If it's not God, if it's the alternative, they'll start with something and they get deeper and deeper and deeper into that, which is like a captivity. And it can lead to all sorts of things. Everything that you've said, violence, um, mental illness, um, murder, all sorts of things. So... Um, you know, we really, that's, that's the challenge. But once they get on down those tracks, it's not so easy. I get so um, angry sometimes and um, ang- anxious in the churches. They're not ministering to these people because, you know, they don't just need to be told about Jesus. They need empowering because, you know, they're, they're captives of this demonic influence in their lives. Robin, good thoughts there. Let's get some insights from Shane Varco. I mean, where do we go for comfort? Uh, There's an interesting issue there as Robin is drawing that uh, connection to what churches perhaps can be involved in. And uh, you were talking about meaning and purpose, uh, Shane, but your response for Robin. Well, Robin, look, Delgano Institute is a a non-religious organisation. So obviously we don't uh, specialise in that space. 
but being uh, being involved in the sector, we, we we liaise with all sorts of groups. We liaise with groups from various religious backgrounds. We've had engagement with uh, Hindu groups who are very anti-drugs. Muslim groups are very anti-drugs as well. They're incredibly opposed to, to drug use um, as from a religious cultural perspective. Still, of course, we deal with churches and Christian groups as well uh, in Australia, more so than any, any other group because of the proliferation of, of those movements. And it's interesting, I... I, I can, I can see some of the things you're saying and some of the activities that are involved in that. One of the things I, I find, and that's what we talk about, the whole point of getting getting young people and families to talk about the big picture issues of like meaning and obviously uh, anchoring themselves into something that's sustainable. And, and that's the, I think that's the, the, the question that has to, to be brought to bear. And you, when it comes to, to dealing with groups uh, in uh, churches that help uh, empower people exit the drug scene, in fact, I think you'll find uh, for those who are... Uh, conversant with with 12-step programs i mean the the original 12-step programs set up by um you know dr bob and um bill wilson were these two men i believe had a spiritual encounter with with the christ of christianity and and they, they out of that they drove that that drove their 12-step uh program and the, and the steps behind that which are phenomenal now that's been since then that's been adapt, adopted by other groups and other in, in other sectors who talk about higher power and, and as opposed to the high power being God, the, the Christian God, the, the, the Christ of Christianity. And they've adopted this high power mantra, um, for, for better or for worse, one, one, one's yet to figure that one out. But, but that model has been incredibly successful. Certainly that's not 100% proof, no one's arguing that, because it's still about choice factors, everyone involved. But the history of that particular organisation and its impact uh, internationally is staggering. And even today... Groups around the world, uh, think groups like uh, Teen Challenge, for example, the classic one, who don't run therapeutic communities, not just 12-step programs, but therapeutic communities. Oxford House, um, Transformations, there's different groups that do this, and they do it in- remarkably well. And, and the success rate for those who are completing the 12-step programs and continuing in them and or uh, doing a full rehab in 12 you know, therapeutic communities, which are abstinent communities, uh, they are, they are drug-free uh, um drug-free for at least 12 months afterwards, if not longer. In fact, I believe right now in America there's, and I've got the data directly in front of me, so please don't you know, swing this as, as authoritatively and the final word, but I can't get the data, but I think there's currently 25 million ex-addicts plus, ex-addicts in the United States of America who have been involved in with predominantly 12-step and therapeutic communities who are continuing drug-free because of of that of that mechanism, so that higher power dynamic, that need to uh, to escape the the groups, and I, and I like the demonic analogy. I think you know demons come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and uh, and all sorts of influences using the term demon, um, and they are very very powerful. And and to to get disconnected from those those uh, apparatus, for want of a better word, in a person's life is vital. Shane, and, I'm going to need to cut in because yeah, we're about sure. to go to news. Sure. Uh, thank you so much to Robin from Mount Morgan. Yeah, well, and you. our talkback line remains open. Following up on one of our callers just before the news, uh, there is a book that is out and about uh, called uh, Let My People Go. It's a theology of addiction produced by a Queensland doctor and professor, Dr. Albert Stewart Rees. He deals with drugs and this issue of the demonic. Uh, you're familiar with this book? Is it valid for uh, for people who are in a church context, for Christian believers to read? 
Well, look, I have uh, I have come across that book. In fact, I've had a bit to, to do with it because it's interesting you brought that up. I appreciate that. It's a uh, yeah, it's a very very good work. Stuart's a, a long time. Uh, Professor Stuart Reese, a long-time uh, campaign, anti-drug campaigner, and remarkably you know, committed man to to helping addicts get drug-free. Just just a remarkable career. In fact, very sacrificial. Had a bit to do with him professionally. Um, so yeah, the book uh, uh, is uh, goes very much into the the science. It's not just a theological treatise. It goes into the science behind this and. It is a it is a remarkable insight. So for anyone anyone in the in the healthcare profession that's that's interested in looking at um, uh, psychosocially as well as uh, for want of better words spiritually, uh, I think is a is a is, is a must have book. Really, it it, it opens up uh, a lot of issues that uh, mainstream uh, ideas have failed to see because they're just not pr- uh, pr- uh, privy to it. I think positive psychology. Uh, that particular stream of psychology, which has a lot of uh, a lot of interest, a lot of followers, but has some has some detractors as well, is uh, is is very much in that in that uh, in that sphere. No, that, that, so this yeah, the book itself is uh, from what I've read of it, very 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 good, and in, in, in for what it addresses. Okay, that one called "Let My People Go," Doctor Albert Stewart Reese. Yes. Theology of Addiction. Let's talk a little about alcohol, and listeners will be familiar because uh, with some level of frequency, there is research that is talked about uh, in popular television current affairs programs, and there was some detail just recently about uh, the idea that somehow or other uh, it's uh, sort of levelled out a little bit with young people, but binge drinking is on the rise for those over the age of 40, and Australians over 50... Uh, also have higher rates of illicit drug use than other people. Uh, what, are, what are the facts on alcohol? As a drug and alcohol educator, you're across these things, uh, sorting through uh, the issues, trying to discern what is the actual issue to do with alcohol and uh, different age groups today. What are your thoughts on, oh, on those things, Shane? Absolutely, Neil. Look, I think the alcohol issue is... Um well, it better come specifically to that demographic and that particular issue that you've raised. We've been across this for probably about five years. This first came out as a uh, publicised, uh, I think the, the data's been there for a long time, but actually hit the public uh, sector probably about five, around five years ago. This idea that, hang on a minute, we've got this demographic in play, sort of 45 to 65 bracket, that are actually binging. Now, a binge is considered um, you know, five or more standard drinks of alcohol in one sitting. So if you're, um, you know, five, it might, might be a four, you know, over three or four hours uh, over an evening. Uh, we're not saying it's all, you know, in half an hour you have knock back five standard drinks. We're talking about over an evening. But that is considered a binge. So five or more drinks is a binge. And according to NHMRC uh, regulations, sorry, guidelines, they recommend that that's, that's quite unhealthy uh, on any occasion, let alone on a regular occasion. So that data hit the table. Now, of course... What you got, and that's around the same time, that was a bit earlier again, maybe in 2007, 2008, 2009, when the binge drinking was happening, it was high profile with young people, and it was pretty bad. So there was a big push against that, you know, the concerns around young people because the damage done to the developing brain and the potential for ongoing misuse of alcohol because of that early uptake was a real problem. But they ignored the bigger picture because it's the older and more seasoned. That's I hate that word because it sounds like it's some sort of you know, wonderfully acquired 
skill set, the more seasoned drinker. These people have been drinking alcohol consistently. I'm not saying they're alcoholics, but they're drinking consistently, probably since they were 16, 17, 18. Now they're 40 years into their drinking culture and, and drinking uh, set. And, of course, at, in the evening when they sit down, they might have one or two bottles of red. Now, the average content of the alcohol now, I think a bottle of red is about 13% proof, So, you, 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 which has also been kept out of the media quite a bit too because they used to collect data on this up until about 10 years ago and the industry managed to get that kind of removed. But that's coming back into play now. They're going to start looking at volume, uh, volumetrics uh, ratings on alcohol beverages so you know exactly what you're getting. But a bottle of red, 14% proof. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big kick for a red. And, and so the average Joe says, oh, look, I'm just having a glass or two or three with my meal. And all of a sudden it becomes this, this condiment. So I'm not drinking because I, I'm a drinker who's got an issue. I'm just enjoying this wonderful night of entertainment with food. And because I'm having a meal, somehow that, that negates the 12, 12 to 14% proof alcohol that I'm imbibing in. And we're talking about a bottle. So you might have a bottle, you might be in, a, in that one bottle, five standard drinks. And so you, you've actually binged um, on your night out or your night at home. And, of course, they don't uh, necessarily manifest the classic examples of what we believe a binge drinker would look like. A binge drinker is going to be staggering, slurring their words, falling down. Of course, that, you know, with young people, that, that can take you know, 15 to 20 drinks to do that. With an older person, they're so used to doing it, their bodies are so acclimatised to this, that they, you, you really don't notice much of a difference. And I've come from a, a Dutch background, and uh, you know, my, my, uh, my, on my mother's side, <laughs> yep. they loved to hit it pretty hard. And look, they were all happy drunks, mm. but they used to hit it pretty hard. I used to remember growing up with these people, and they were all, every time we got together, they would always get drunk. They would always get drunk, and it was like, and they were all happy drunks, so I grew up with that, but I thought to myself, well, this is kind of normal, it's what you do when you, and these are all people in their uh, 30s and 40s and 50s. So, yeah, I, what happens is people just don't think I'm binging, I haven't got a problem, but in fact, the chronic health issues around this are quite devastating, but that's another conversation. And with the uh, over 40s, over yep. 50s, uh, of course, when we talk about values being passed to the next generation, is... Uh, the report that somehow or other binge drinking may have stabilised in younger generations is that likely to be the case, or have you got concerns about some of those sorts of deal, uh, uh, those uh, those sorts of research uh, statistics? No, the data is coming in because again, this is this is what's fascinating. When you have a a focused one voice, one message, one focus, educative and legislative push to try and shift culture, and this is what happens because you know we're we're, we're governed by values now. All of us are governed by values and or meaning, uh, well, sorry, meaning and values and ideas and morals. Now, they're all taught. Now, who's teaching you and where they're coming from all depends on your matrix, your learning matrix. So when it comes to a culture that's basically, uh, it's, we've got this generic now um, values neutral, which is a complete misnomer, of course, because there's no such thing as a values neutral environment, but this idea there is no dominant values driver in the culture People are basically just following the cues, they're taking the cues from whatever voice is loudest in the marketplace. So when you're living in a branding, uh, a brand-driven culture where advertising is everything and the loudest voice and the loudest, if you like, ethical slash moral slash values voice in the marketplace is the advertising campaign that you're subject to every day in the media. And branders, just to, just to digress, but I think it's really important, marketers got incredibly clever and understanding the human psyche. They know that we need community. They know that we need 
you know, to connect with others. We know that we need to do life with others. And secondly, we know we need to find meaning and purpose in life. In fact, brand strategists around the world uh, have completely locked into this dynamic. So they say, okay, people need meaning. They need community. They need connection. So let's take our product and let's market it in this space. So alcohol, classic. Alcohol brings people together. You'll watch the ads, you'll see, you know, we're, we're, our Australian values, one of the, I won't mention the name, one of the most prominent spirit ads that's been banged around at the moment, you know, we're Australians, we have these shared values. And of course, what the shared value is around? It's around alcohol. And this particular product has this incredible capacity to bring us together and give us meaning, give us purpose. Well, it might give us focus and it might bring us together, but to what end? And we know now from uh, any relationships based around substance use or misuse are very poor relationships because the, the shared connection isn't around a personal understanding of one another's needs, of, of a shared higher value. It's simply shared around a neurotransmitter-released experience around a particular episode. So my relationships aren't really relationships with the person. They're relationships with a shared experience. And that is not what community is built on, hence the ongoing social isolation issues in our culture. People feeling lonely, even though they're in pubs, in places, in drinking, they're still not connecting because the real issues of your humanity and who you are as a person, why am I here and what's the purpose of life and how do we connect and how do we become productive and enjoy one another, those kind of elements aren't dealt with because we're too busy getting sloshed. And so um, there's this subtle nuance and, and the marketers are brilliant at this. So... Getting back to that point, what are the values drivers around this, this particular substance? And so not only is it release dopamine and, and, and other neurotransmitters that make us feel good, help us relax, give us more confidence, which we all seem to need more and more and more of because we're socially un, in, unconfident. And so we, we're buying into this narrative now that this is going to give us meaning and going to give us connection. So it's a, there's, there's your driver. Now, the person still chooses to use the substance still chooses to engage in a psychotropic you know, substance for the purposes of making themselves feel better and connecting. But is it actually helping us connect or is it actually diminishing our capacity to connect? And are we just creating a perpetuation of a problem where we're not actually really having relationships that are meaningful, but we're simply just sharing a, an alcohol-induced or drug-induced experience that has no weight, no bearing on how we see life or how we function in it. Yep. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's the real issue for me. So the user still makes the choice. But what are the demand drivers that are in the marketplace that are helping them make that poor choice because they don't seem to believe there's another choice available to them? We're taking phone calls. 1-800-316-316 to be part of our conversation. Uh, Shane, let's take a call from John in Somerset in Tasmania. Hello, John. Welcome along. Hello, uh, Neil. Hello, John. Uh, Two things that I'd like your guest to comment on. One, I was at uh, a market the other day and there was a stall with second-hand books and who should be in the same pile but Timothy Leary, Jim Morrison of The Doors and Jimi Hendrix. Uh, So uh, I'm just wondering how much there is still a popular uh, philosophy behind uh, drug and the drug culture in our time or is it more self-medication the other thing is the old thing of drugs or alcohol plus something else so alcohol plus pornography uh, has an effect on behaviour and drugs and terrorism I wonder if your guest would care to comment on uh, those two lines of thought Shane your thoughts for John 
Yes, certainly, John. Thanks for that. Yeah, look, the Timothy Leary phenomenon, I think, was an early driver of it for experimentation. Of course, now he's just a, a very poor stand-up comic, what's left of him. Um, but he was one of the early folklore, you know, outers. Of, I think he was, a, at that one stage, he was a Berkeley professor. So he was one of these guys banging on about this new progressive postmodern space. And, you know, let's... let's enlighten ourselves and let's explore the psychedelic arena which the Beatles bought into and all those kind of groups so yeah, we went through that that's that particular phase and then of course uh, you know and again even pharmacotherapists were experimenting with LSD and, and even MDMA or what they call ecstasy was a they, these these drugs were attempted to be used in psychotherapy but they were found to be too dangerous for all sorts of reasons and we won't go into that particular side of things but they, these are substances that have been played with and experimented with, and used in a pharmacotherapy framework, and, and and created all sorts of issues, which which is now the reason why they are classified as as not healthy and dangerous drugs. But so, what's happening now, though, is uh, what are the drivers behind it? And I think uh, that was kind of the Leary's idea was to launch, and Morrison was to launch into this new new space of spirituality, and and uh, drugs like DMT uh, and, and and arguably MDMA. Uh, the drugs that are now touted as helping people find a, another connection. But we know that, you know, regardless of the manifestations and the images that they see, and buying back into your previous callers, your psych nurses callers' comments, Neil, about about the spiritual realm, I can imagine that's what that would look like, their perception of what's spiritual is, these these uh, visions and, and images, which can be quite distressing and often, often lead to suicide and or self-harm because people believe something that's absolutely not true. So they're the things that are of concern. So it's real spirituality can't be found through a psychotropic engagement. What it, what, it's, what it can do is open you up to that arena. But in what space are you, what, what are you buying into? So that's a, that's a whole different argument. But now we're talking about what, why are people taking this up? It's interesting you bring that up. 2013 household survey, which is the latest one we've got on drugs. You know, only about 7% of people that use drugs are really using it for self-medication purposes. And that's horrendous. I mean, trauma hurt, deep, uh, painful, emotional, physical experiences, uh, you know, and particularly around opioids, is, is one of the biggest drivers for those use. We, they, they want to numb the pain. So that's horrendous. And those kind of drivers, uh, that, that's the actual demographic you would argue have got, they've still got a choice. There's no argument there. The choice has not been removed from them. But they're so um, harangued, so overwhelmed by their experiences that they believe this is the shortcut to fix the problem. So I get that. And we talk about um, relentless pain in our seminars. That's one of the drivers of drug use, relentless pain. But that's only about 7% of the population. In fact, between 40 and 70% of people take up drugs for the first time for two primary reasons. One, curiosity and experimentation. Let's have a crack. And two, a friend offered it to me. They're the two things. So again, a relationship with someone I trust who says, oh, this is okay, this will make you have fun. And so fun factors in there, and oh, well, might as well try it and see what happens. So there, there you're up your demand drivers for uptake. So again, now we're, the argument that oh, and a lot of pro-drug advocates will say, oh, you know, we're, drug use is horrendous because people are so messed up and so full of hurt and so, well, no, 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 that's not the data. You know? Sure, I'm not saying that drug addiction doesn't mess you up and create its own maelstrom of addiction and pain and grief. And those people need to exit from drug use and help to do so. But that's not the reason they took it up. The vast majority of people didn't take up drugs because they were in, in great pain. So there's this myth that's perpetuated for the purposes of policy management that's got to be really looked at. Because those people who are in pain need to be helped and desperately helped and with the best practices available. And certainly illicit substance use is not best practice. But the rest of the people who take them up and get caught 
in the maelstrom of drug use and addiction started not because they were in pain and grief and horrible and their socioeconomic background was terrible. It's they were basically, oh, I want a bit of fun, I'm curious, and a friend gave it to me. So we need to have that in the marketplace and start questioning, well, is that behaviour an, an excuse uh, as a demand driver for a, a lack of accountability for drug use in the marketplace? Now, the second part of the question on, on terrorism, and I'll give you a quick answer because our time is running out, but if you go to our no-brainer website, uh, on, on, on particularly on the section called Get a Clue Weed on nobrainer, www.nobrainer.org.au and the weed section, you'll see that there's the vast majority, in fact, of, this, of all the major terrorist and or mass murders that have happened globally in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, two years, all had marijuana involved with them. And just look at the website. In fact, terrorists, uh, mass murders, the shootings in America... All heavy marijuana users. So that's I'll just keep, I'll leave that with you. Yeah, check those articles out. But that's been well documented that it's not just a, a tenuous connection. This is a, a driver in the in the background behind some of these behaviours. So I hope that answers the question. It does. Uh, that uh, sufficient for you, John? Yes, that goes a long way. Uh, Peter Hitchens, the the uh, UK journalist, frequently uh, makes the same connection between yes. uh, cannabis use and uh, certain violent terrorist activities. Yes, he does. Uh, Hitchens is he's one of the few voices of reason in the UK, I can tell you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, John from Somerset in Tasmania, thanks so much for your call today. We are running short of time. Uh, in fact, uh, we mentioned the No Brainer website, nobrainer.org.au. Uh, we'll talk about some more ways that you can inform yourself because uh, even if there's not a catastrophic consequence that's happening uh, for you outside of your immediate family, there may be catastrophic consequences happening with drug and alcohol uh, use within families. And we'll talk about how you can uh, prepare yourself or what sort of resources might be available to arm yourself against uh, some of these issues. Back with more with Shane Varco from the Dalgano Institute in just a few moments. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, over this past hour, Shane Varco has been our guest, Executive Director of the Dalgano Institute. And Shane, just a a minute or two remaining in our conversation, I want to uh, make sure that we have some resources and direction sure. for listeners who are saying, well, I need to find out more about this. I've, in fact, uh, some people will be thinking you've never heard it uh, spoken about so straight as they've heard you talk about it today. You mentioned the No Brainer website, nobrainer.org.au, but there are some other websites too that people can access uh, and they've got a different focus. Yeah, look, uh, there's uh, another website that we, uh, we, we run called www.greaterrisk.com. That's just greaterrisk.com. And it's a one-stop shop for young people and families about the al- specifically about alcohol. So it looks at it's a really easy website to navigate. It's just you know, click and, and and view the secondary supply laws, you know, uh, drinking age uh, legislation, statistics about what happens with these sort of things. Where you can go to get some help. Uh, again, it just gives you a, a good look at fast facts you can access on alcohol and young people particularly. There's a blog there. There's, there's, again, it's a really easy, it's not too complicated. It's accessible for the average Joe, if you like, and that's the idea behind it. And, of course, our Delgano website, which is delganoinstitute.org.au. Uh, and, there are, and, of course, on our No Brainer and Delgano websites, there are links to other credible uh, international 
um, uh, facilities as well. We we link very closely to uh, facilities in both uh, the UK, uh, UK, Europe, and in the United States, including the National um, Drug Centre over there. And and so the the data we're we're across and, and tapped into is is high quality and it's as recent as possible, and it's balanced in its in its research. So. You know, on our, our Delgana website, we've got two sections called the Cannabis Conundrum and Cannabis as Medicine, which are just these volumes. We're talking reams and reams of articles, research documents about the issues around cannabis as a medical uh, use issue and all the, all the complexities of that, as well as the just uh, what's happening to it when people use it, misuse it in a so-called recreational context. So they're, they're really easy to access as well. All right. So there is the Dalgano Institute website. Uh, that's where you can make contact too with Shane Varco. He mentioned nobrainer.org.au and also greaterrisk.com. Shane, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your knowledge and your understanding about what's going on with us today on 2020. Oh, my pleasure, Neil, as always, and thank you for the opportunity to do so. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.